This is week number 14, uh, 15 in our study of the um, <clears throat> book of Daniel. And we're over in chapter 4. You remember this is the chapter where, like in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and then he calls for its interpretation. And so last week we walked through the <clears throat> description that Nebuchadnezzar gives of his dream. You remember he called all the wise men together, all the scholars of the land, and gave, told them what the dream was all about, but none of them could interpret it. So then Daniel came on the scene, and Nebuchadnezzar expresses this confidence that Daniel will be able to interpret the dream because he has the spirit of the holy gods within him. And so Nebuchadnezzar lays out this dream again, and this time he does it in a very public way. You remember this whole chapter is uh, a proclamation or a declaration or um, by, by the king. And his intent is that everybody on the planet, every person who is alive would hear this proclamation because he wants all of them to understand the things that he's been privileged to see. That is the signs and wonders uh, wrought by the, um, by the Most High is his description of him. So he tells Daniel about this dream. And you remember in this dream, there's this great tree, large and strong tree, reaches so high that everybody on the planet can see the tree. So this mighty tree, full of foliage, full of fruit, um, big branches, such that all the birds can sit in the branches, all the beasts of the fields can gather in its shade. So you have this mighty tree that is standing for all the world to see. It really provides for all the things that the whole world needs. And then there's this angelic watcher who comes down out of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar in his dream understands that he comes from heaven. And he declares to chop the tree down. Not only chop the tree down, but strip it of all its foliage, of all the fruit, even to uh, cut the branches off of the tree. And so this tree is totally decimated, totally destroyed, such that it leaves this huge field. Because where the tree was, nothing else was growing. Once the tree is down, there's this gigantic field that will then be filled with grass. <clears throat> the angelic watcher also says to leave the stump in all the root system. So he doesn't uproot the tree, but he puts bands of iron and a band of bronze around it. Not exactly sure why, but apparently that holds the tree together, keeps it from growing um, until the appropriate time. And so <clears throat> then he changes his language. He's been talking about this tree, and then the watcher changes his language and begins to talk about a person making it clear that this tree represents a person. And he says that that person's mind will be changed. He'll be given the mind of a beast. And he will go and live in the grassy field where the tree once was, and the dew will drench him. And that his claws will grow, his fingernails and toenails will grow long, and his hair will grow long, and that he will stay there for seven periods of time. And so that's the dream that is given to Nebuchadnezzar. None of the wise men can interpret it. 
So at the end of explaining about his dream, he then asked Daniel to interpret it. And that's where we'll pick up today. Down in chapter 4 and verse 19, where Nebuchadnezzar in verse 18 turns to Daniel and uh, asks him to interpret the dream. And then beginning in verse 19 is the interpretation. So Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, there the scripture reads, Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O King, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Okay, so this is Daniel's interpretation that nobody else was able to give. Now, something that's interesting just in the different translations If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice this beginning of chapter 19 is in quotations, meaning it's quoting Nebuchadnezzar, uh, believing that all the way back in verse 1, where Nebuchadnezzar said, peace be multiplied to you, that he's been speaking ever since then. Now, if you have an ESV or you have a New King James, this um, sentence is not in quotation marks to start with. And they don't put it in quotation marks until Nebuchadnezzar actually speaks. Now, which is right? We don't know, right? Because the original manuscripts had no quotation marks, had no punctuation at all. So we're not exactly sure which way it is. I tend to agree with the NAS 
that it sounds like this is Nebuchadnezzar making a proclamation to all the earth. He speaks for himself. He speaks for the angel. He speaks for Daniel. And later, or maybe as he spoke it, Daniel is writing it down. So I believe this is Nebuchadnezzar making a proclamation, just as it says back in verse 1, so that everybody on the planet will know. And he's the one telling the story. Could be right, could be wrong. So in verse 19, he begins to... um, Daniel is given the interpretation, basically there at the beginning of verse 19. He doesn't have to go away like he did the first time and pray and ask God to give him the interpretation. It immediately comes to him, apparently. All right, now, what does that interpretation that Daniel understands but has not yet spoken cause for him? What does it produce within him? All right, alarm, anxiety. Well, yeah, I would say it is compassionate. Um, You'll notice that in verse 19 it says that he was appalled and that his thoughts alarmed him. Some other translations, different word, instead of appalled, dismayed. So what does it mean to be appalled or dismayed? Perplexed. All right, perplexed would be one of the words. Upset, what, horrified. Horrified would be a legitimate word. Frightened would be a legitimate word. Uh, so this is, and, and to be alarmed means what? Right, you do sense danger, and then when you sense the danger, what do you do if you're alarmed? You do panic. It could also mean to flee away. It could mean to run away. Go ahead. Well, you only said, well, my interpretation said dismayed for a while. Right. But then where it says seven seasons, it doesn't say it here, but it implies that there's an end to it, but um, not necessarily known what's the state after the end happens. Does Nebuchadnezzar then die? Does he come back into power? That's not clear at this stage. At this but, stage, but no. But a limited period of time. All right, so Dan- Daniel has this interpretation. He's, um, he's discouraged. He's frightened. He wants to run and hide. He's uh, uh, panicking. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He calms him down. Why, though? Why does Nebuchadnezzar come and speak to Daniel and say, Daniel, don't be alarmed? What, what does that tell you about this interpretation in Daniel? He does fear God. What Nebuchadnezzar does. So what does Daniel look like at this time when he gets this interpretation? I don't think so. Because I'll tell you in a little while who I think is in Nebuchadnezzar's place. Probably. So it's frightening him enough and alarming him enough and panicking him enough that Nebuchadnezzar can see it on his face and his body. You know, maybe he's trembling. Maybe he's distraught. I mean, it's visibly apparent that, ne- that Daniel is shaken by what he now understands to such a degree that Nebuchadnezzar can see it all over him and speaks to him and says, don't be alarmed, just tell me what it means, right? So this is, 
Go ahead. Thinking of, you know, killing the messenger. It's like, no, I want to hear what it is. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't think Daniel is afraid of Nebuchadnezzar at all. That's not what he's afraid of. Yeah, I mean, he, he is, he's not scared of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, they've been together now for a long time. Daniel's been at his right hand, you know, I'm going to say 15, 20 years that they've been together. So this has gone on for, it could be longer than that. So this is, he's been there with him, operating with him for a long time. So this is not just, you know, a young kid now with the great king. This is, you know, now a 35-year-old man with the king. So this is much advanced from where we were back in the previous chapters. All right, so Daniel is visibly shaken, and the king can see it, and so the king tries to calm him down. And Daniel's response about this interpretation that he understands but nobody else knows is what? What's he say to the king? Because this reveals a lot about who Daniel is and who Nebuchadnezzar is. Yeah, he wishes that what he understood, which is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be cut down, would be true about Nebuchadnezzar's enemies or his adversaries or those who hate him. Now, is that an honest reply by Daniel? So is Daniel genuinely concerned for Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, remember, this is the guy who, when Daniel was a young teenager, drug him out of his land in chains. And if you'll read the accounts of the historians, they were unclothed when they drug them off to their, back to Babylon. Totally stripped of all their clothing. So, and, and, you know, had to carry heavy lumber, uh, uh, giant trees, so that they could build things back in Babylon. He did that, and then Daniel saw him repeatedly raid his hometown, Jerusalem, until finally he destroyed the temple of Daniel's God. He murdered scores of Jews, both in the siege of Jerusalem and along the way back to Babylon, and when they got him back to Babylon, any of the week he would just kill indiscriminately. Those who couldn't make the journey because they weren't weak enough died in the desert trying to get back to Babylon. And Daniel experienced all this, saw all this, saw the brutality, saw him conquer all the nations all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea, and yet, Daniel stands there and is genuinely concerned about this guy who's wrecked his homeland and drug all his people off and destroyed the temple of his God? Really? Yeah. You think he's genuinely concerned? Go ahead. I, I think he's seeing how God is working. Okay. In what way, Sherry? Right. Yeah, they have. I, I don't. I, I think it's a. I think it's a deep mutual admiration, and I think it goes both ways. 
So I do think he had that, but that is not why I think Daniel says what he says. Go ahead, David. Right. And I do think all that's true. I still don't think that's why he says what he says. Why, why does Daniel speak these words to Nebuchadnezzar? Go ahead. Right. Yeah, I don't, he knows all this has to happen. He knows God and, ordained that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy his home. And he may know that now, but he may not. Because in chapter 9, he says, I came to realize that the desolation was only for 70 years. So I don't know if he knows that now. But what does he definitely know? He knows that God is sovereign. You remember chapter 2? That after God revealed the first dream to him, what he said? Look back at chapter 2. And this is Daniel's, if you will, theology. And this is the theology that is his lens to look at what Nebuchadnezzar is and what he's done. And so back in chapter 2, in verse 20, is it? Chapter 2, verse 20, where he said, And Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. This is Daniel's theology, right? This is how he views the world. So what is Daniel's perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's a harsh, cruel man, destroyed Daniel's homeland, what is true about Nebuchadnezzar? That he is only there because God put him there which means God must have had a purpose in everything that Nebuchadnezzar did. This is the lens through which Daniel looks at all that's happened to him and to his people and to the temple of his God, everything. This is Daniel's, this is Daniel's theology guiding his mind, his words, his actions, which is what theology is supposed to do. If you look at chapter 1, verse 2, mm-hmm. Right. That's the same thing, right? He, this is the way he's viewing everything that's happening. Because he saw the corruption in, in, the, in his homeland. He knew the uh, two-facedness and the evil that had been done before him and that continued after him in Jerusalem. So it, this, that didn't escape his attention. So Daniel understands what's going on, but to such a degree... Does his theology shape his actions that he can honestly stand before Nebuchadnezzar, who is an evil tyrant, and say, I wish this would happen to your enemies and to your adversaries rather than to you? But David, he really doesn't say, I wish it were happening. He, you could make a statement like that, right. only the dream applied to your adversaries, sure. without actually wishing that it did. But Daniel's not two-faced. No, but I mean, I'm just saying, 
say to somebody, oh, if you only knew the whole story, that doesn't mean I don't want you to know the rest of the story. Right, but if something evil is going to happen to you, and I say I wish it would happen to somebody else other than to you, and I'm Daniel, who would never, never lead you on, then I... He says, if only it applied to your adversary. He's looking at it. All right, so don't use the word. So, so don't use the word wish. I wish it wouldn't happen to you. I wish it would happen to him. Is basically what he says, right? Or I, we, I imagine that this would be better if it applied to him rather than to you. Right? Well, that's, I don't see any difference. But, but he could be think, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's in agreement with the situation or not in agreement. It's just a statement. Okay, yeah, I can see you, your, your point. I take it the other way. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, may this apply to somebody else. He'd just say, he'd just say I hope this doesn't happen to you. But Daniel knows better than that, and we'll see that in just a minute. He knows that this applies to Nebuchadnezzar and that it will happen. Never, never through this interpretation does he ever doubt what's going to happen. Never. Go ahead. He acknowledges Nebuchadnezzar is only there because God allowed it. Right. I would believe that he must see himself also as being in a position he's in, having been dragged from somewhere because God allowed it, having survived because God allowed it, well, and being an advisor to the king because God had a purpose for him to be where he is. And then in verse 26 and 7, he's giving... Nebuchadnezzar advice, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. So right. maybe Daniel's purpose there is to try to wake up Nebuchadnezzar, at least to the extent that he can be, to be more of a righteous person than he has been. And he may have turned from his ways because it wasn't immediately that he became a crazy cow. Well, we'll talk about that when we get there, okay? Right. I know, but I'm saying he had a bit of time that he maybe he was repentant for just a short window, but yeah. eventually, of course, he did what God Right. All right. So let's walk through this. Um, Daniel goes back and repeats basically the interpretation of the dream, right? Speaks it back to the king so that he can then, as he does so, tell the king what it means. This means this. This means this. So he simply tells him about, in verses 20 and 21, he just describes the destruction, utter destruction that's going to happen um, to the tree again, where not only is its foliage and fruit pulled off, but its branches are cut off, left to rot in the field, I suppose. Now, this is a big tree, so I don't know if it would rot in seven periods of time. So maybe it's still laying there at the end of all of this. Maybe he's just horrified at what? Don't you don't you think this is just figurative language, not really speaking about a literal tree or a little guy out in the field having to gra- munch on grass? Isn't this just you know just an allegory? No. Mm-hmm. Well, the tree is. The tree is. Nebuchadnezzar is just not a tree. He is a man. That's right. <laughs> this is not an allegory. This actually happened to him. Right, he will eat grass. He will get wet with dew. His hair will grow long. His nails will grow long. All of that will happen. I have a question. Unless I missed something, 
whether where you landed on whether uh, Daniel was genuinely concerned for Philip for Nebuchadnezzar. Why do, why do I say that? No, no, no. I couldn't understand. I could not tell from your. Daniel is genuinely concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. He, he wishes, he, he desires for it to happen to somebody else. Right. And God agrees. Because <laughs> he says so. Daniel is speaking for God in this passage, and we'll see that when we get down there. All right, now, in verse 22, he's very straightforward to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, this tree represents you. And then, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar is appalled at this point. Because Daniel continues, and he says, This tree represents you because you have grown great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great, and reads to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And you can just see Nebuchadnezzar standing up in front of all the people, right? This is me. I am great in all the earth. My majesty is great. I am the most powerful person on the planet. And that's all true. I mean, it's absolutely true. That is who he is. And I think at this point, he's taking great pleasure in what Daniel is saying and doesn't even think about what's yet to come. And so he's all puffed up at this point, and which would probably appall Daniel even more. And so Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the planet. And then he says, he, he gets to the part about um, the angelic watcher coming down. And angelic is added by New American Standard. It's just a watcher. But the watcher is from where? From heaven. And Daniel acknowledges that. Why does Daniel say that the watcher is from heaven? Because he wants Nebuchadnezzar to realize that this is of God. Well, and Nebuchadnezzar said that. Right? In, in relating the dream, Nebuchadnezzar said, an, an, a watcher from heaven came down and spoke to me. How do you differentiate those watchers that were not from heaven? Yeah. Fallen to earth back in Genesis, I think chapter 6. Right. And you know, you remember Daniel's word to Nebuchadnezzar uh, when he's interpreting the first dream? I can't interpret the dream, but there is a God in heaven who knows all mysteries. <coughs> And so he's going back to the same thing he said the first time. He, he always, Daniel always, takes the attention off of himself and puts it on heaven. And every time he t- he's speaking these kind of things to Nebuchadnezzar, this is not his word, it's heaven's word. Okay, and so the watcher in verse 23 uh, says, chop down this tree and destroy it. We know that's going to happen. But then don't uproot the stump or the roots? Why not? So, what, I mean, what does that represent in a tree? The very life itself, right? Without the roots, the tree dies. The tree can regenerate. You know, if it's got the roots, take away the roots. Right. So the tree can regrow, as I described last week, right? If even can be transplanted, if you take the roots with it. And so that, if nothing else, is a glimmer of hope for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's horrific what he's going to have to go through, and Daniel understands that, but there's at least this glimmer of hope at the end of of what's going to take place. But he is going to be literally 
out where the dew will drench him. He'll be in the grassy field that's created when the tree falls down because grass will grow in its place. And he'll be out there with the wild beasts. Now, something that he describes here in verse 23, well, he doesn't say it there. And he'll be there for seven periods of time, right? Is that the significance of why he's in the field? Is it because of the duration? Is, is that what really marks the time when he will come out of the field? Right. When he, when he acknowledges that it's heaven that rules. That's what really marks it. Okay, the other is just keeping time. All right, and we'll, I want to talk about that in just a second. So, Daniel, um, in verse 24, Daniel makes something that, to me, is crystal clear. What is that? So, when the, when the angelic watcher said that the watchers have decided and decreed that this will happen to you. What's true about that statement? Well, did they just independently make this decision? Right, but they're speaking not for themselves. They're speaking for the God Most High, right? And that term keeps showing up. Why the term... God Most High. Well, let me ask you a question. Who first used that term in the book of Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did. He's now, who agreed with him in this dream? Who agreed that it's God Most High who is speaking? The Watcher did, right? Because the Watcher said it's God Most High who wants to communicate this to you. Now, where does that term come from, God Most High? Is that plentiful in Scripture? It typically means the God of all nations, including but not exclusive of Israel. Okay. Where did that term first show up? Melchizedek. You know who Melchizedek is, right? Right, Abram goes out and, and takes Lot back and captures all the kings who had come against him and comes back and get, does honor or homage to Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And so Melchizedek, four times in that passage, it says that Melchizedek is priest of God Most High. Other than that, it's scattered a little bit through scripture, I mean, you'll see it once in Isaiah, you'll see it once in Jeremiah, you'll see it in Exodus one time, but you'll see it 21 times in the Psalms where he's called God Most High. So that's the, that's the most plentiful that you'll see it. So this is not the common name, as you said, of, of God to the Jews. This is a common name of God to those who are non-Jewish. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is. 
And so he calls him God Most High. The angel agrees with him, or the watcher agrees with him. Daniel uses that same term to speak of it, because it's what Nebuchadnezzar understands. Daniel knows much more than just that. But Nebuchadnezzar, the first time he said it, is when he looked into the furnace and he saw the presence of God, either in an angel or in God, pre-incarnate Christ or in God himself, in the fire with the three um, friends of Daniel. And he said, you three um, who are of God most high, come out to me. And then they did. That's where he first used that term. And so he's, he, he understands that there is this God of many gods who in some way is superlative to those other gods. Not necessarily that he's over all of them, by no means. That would be the god known as Marduk, or the god that translated as Bel. That's the Nebuchadnezzar god. That's who's supreme. That's who he worshipped, at least up until this point. Okay, so he uses that same term. Daniel makes it crystal clear that both he and the watchers were not speaking for themselves. They're speaking for God. So this is the, when we talk about a decree here, it's not the decree of the angels or a decree of Daniel. It's the decree of God. And what's always true about a decree of God? It, it will happen somewhat like he says. Right? No, it will happen exactly like he says without any deviation whatsoever and no chance for it not to happen regardless of what men pray or, or ask for. It will happen exactly as God says. Now, what does the term decree mean? What would, what would be a synonym that you would use for decree? Proclaim. I proclaim would be one way. If it's, if it's God and we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and we are, what would be another term for it? Judgment would be a decent word. What else? Fiat, edict. I mean, this is like um, the term sentence that is actually used in the scripture is appropriate. This is a judgment by the judge that the verdict is going to be executed on the one who's guilty. That's what this is. This is a decree by God of judgment against Nebuchadnezzar. Not total judgment, because the tree isn't uprooted and the stump is left, but at least a partial judgment. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on here, and Daniel says just that, that this is coming from uh, the Most High God, not from me as I stand here in front of you and interpret this. All right, so in verse 25 he says that that you will be driven away from mankind. Now, what does that sound like to you? You'll be driven away from mankind. That's what the, the watcher said. That's what, Daniel, that's what Nebuchadnezzar said. That's what Daniel repeats. What does it mean to be driven away from mankind? Yeah, but, but what is, yeah, it sounds like a revolt, does it not? It sound, I mean, driven away from mankind. Is that something God does or men do? 
So he's going to be dragged out of uh, the presence of mankind by God. Go ahead. Right. With mankind. Okay. He's now born into animal kind. He's crazy. Right. Right? He's out of his mind. And Yeah, and I just want to know your thought because it never says the passage never says in verse thirty, I think, it'll simply say he was driven away from mankind, but I don't know exactly what that means. Right? I I think maybe people didn't want to be around him because he's lost his mind. You know, all we know is he ate grass. But he's given the mind of a beast. We don't know what else he did. Right? All we know is he ate grass. I'm sure he did other things like a beast would do. Go ahead. No, clearly not. Clearly not. It, it definitely was caused by God himself, right? All right. So we don't know exactly what drove him away, but we know he is driven away. And there he will eat grass with all the other wild animals. So he's not alone. He's with the, the others of his kind. He's with all the other wild animals. And he eats the grass and he gets wet with dew. So he's just living like a beast. It doesn't okay. say that he chose to eat grass. It said it nope. shall, you shall be made to eat grass. Right. Well, if you're given the mind of an animal, you're going to eat grass, right? Unless you're a lion, you're carnivorous, right? Right. Go ahead. Yeah, kept him alive. He kept him alive, and this man, and you know, I'm not so sure that a human could eat grass for seven years and stay alive. Not exclusively. Seven periods of time, seven weeks, seven days, I couldn't eat grass and stay alive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't think a person could eat just grass and stay alive. So this is God providing for him, taking this, care of him. drive away, isn't this the same uh, word that's used uh, in Genesis when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden? I don't know that. I didn't check that. Because that's certainly... Of some of some nature. Go ahead. How long would it take to grow the fingernails and grow the hair? A while, right? More than a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if they became like birds' claws. You know. Oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> Go ahead, Sherry. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is caused by God. So Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, right? So what does that tell you about God? I mean, God made a decree that Nebuchadnezzar would lose his mind. And then, how did all this take place? Yeah. I mean, what caused all this to happen? Well, God's not only sovereign, but if you're going to be given the mind of an animal and lose your mind, what does that tell you about God? Yeah, he can even so direct the mind of men 
And we're going to see even more than that in a few minutes. He can do more than just make you go crazy. Matter of fact, probably we would all go crazy if it wasn't for God. In, in Romans, when Paul said that God gives people over to a depraved mind, this, kind of be like this is even more than depraved, right? That's depraved in the sense of evil doing. This is this is crazy. This is psycho ward. Right. People who had this disease. Sure. 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 And we call them <laughs> crazy. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. This is that's extreme vegetarianism. Right? That's the height of vegetarianism. <laughs> we do go ahead. Yeah, you're driving maybe, from mankind, put a bell around his neck, yeah, right? Maybe uh, other villagers go, whoa, this guy's nuts, so they just drove him away. It been, this is the king, remember. Right, but this is the most powerful man on the planet. He couldn't speak anymore, he's eating grass, he's pulling his, his hair out, or whatever he's doing. You know. well, if, if you read the, uh, the, the uh, Benjamin Franklin's accounts of his uh, visit to King George, who was, lost his mind at the time, they made sure they kept him in, in a nice garden area where he could shake hands with the trees all day long, which mm-hmm. he did. Uh, and so they, they, they made sure they, they, you know, they kept him in an enclosed area out of sight of the British public who would probably have had issues with that. All right, now, notice how the passage of time ends in this verse. Because I think this tells us something about who God is. It says in verse 25, that you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. Now, how can a man with an animal's mind come to that realization? And he... He comes to that realization by the work of God. Right? You agree with that? Which means that God can put things in your mind. Is that true? He can, he can literally cause you to think something. You can. Well, he put the interpretation agreement in Daniel's mind. So. At the end of the age, mm-hmm. he'll take the ten kings and put it in their mind to give their power over to the single king. That's what the scripture says. So God not only is sovereign over his creation, not only can um, give a man an animal's mind, he can put thoughts into the mind of a man and help you to recognize something. Give me a modern day example of that. 
where he does it all the time exactly like this verse says. Regeneration. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Yeah, which means what? Well, isn't the old premise teaching that God just puts something into your mind? I don't think so. Right. I mean, how is it that a person can live for years and not recognize and understand who Christ is and then all of a sudden one day he understands that and sees the full picture for what it really is understands his sinfulness before God and that Christ is the only savior how how does that happen God shows it to him yeah. yeah puts it into his mind gives him an understanding i mean that understanding doesn't come from within us we become so clever or we recognize something or we just figure it out or someone presents it in such a way that all of a sudden it's clear to me, right? That is not what happens in regeneration. It's not how it happens. It's that the Holy Spirit quickens you alive with Christ and you understand who He is. That comes from above. It happens all the time. That's God putting into the minds of men something that they can't attain to of themselves. Right? Well, it does, doesn't it? But that's, that's where you go with this passage of Daniel, that God can put into his mind things. God can put into the minds of anybody he desires to. He's very involved with his creation. He better be, or no one's going to trust him. Because we all will go our way. So this is a modern-day, current example of God doing the same thing for us that he's doing for Nebuchadnezzar here. Nebuchadnezzar would never get this on his own. He has the mind of an animal. Even given his right mind, he didn't get it on his own. He didn't understand. So that's this is God working in the mind, notice I didn't say in the heart, of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll talk about the heart when we get there. But this is God giving him an understanding of who's in control. And that's the whole purpose for the tree being cut down, the foliage being stripped off, the, the fruit being scattered, the branches being cut off. The whole purpose of all of that is what? Not only him. The civilized world. The whole world. This is why Nebuchadnezzar is now standing before the whole civilized world saying, I want everybody to hear this. Because that's the reason God put me through this, is so that everybody could hear it, not just me. So he's now making proclamation of it to the whole world, to every person on the planet. So that's what's going on here. Now, there's no doubt in Daniel's mind that this is going to happen, right? No doubt. This is decreed by God. So why does he say what he says in the next verse? Why does he then go and say, when he says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel knows this is going to happen. He's scared out of his wits that it's going to happen. He knows this is the decree of God. He said so in verse 24. 
And so why does he say to the king, let this advice be pleasing to you. Turn from your um, wickedness to righteousness and let your iniquities be put away and consider the poor. Because God always acts consistent with his nature. And so just like Jonah went to the people of Nineveh and said, get 40 days and Nineveh is undone, when they repented, God relented because he's always consistent with his nature. So I guess what he was saying to him was, if you're smart, why don't you take a shortcut? (laughs) (laughs) Nineveh not too smart. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar not too smart, right? Does this really mean that if he turned to righteousness, considered the poor, that God would not cause this to happen? It does sound like a delay. And that's what the, I looked it up in several different ways. That is what the word means. It means to extend, not to never happen. Right. Yeah. He's given advice. He's given advice. Now, all right, now, MacArthur pro- proposes a good question here, and so I'll ask it. Is Daniel in this passage teaching works righteousness to Nebuchadnezzar? Look at what he says. Be careful and look at what he says. Look at what he said. These are, these are parallel statements, okay? These are not two separate statements. They're parallel statements when he says, break away now from your sins by doing righteousness. And then the parallel statement, turn from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Those are parallel. Those are not separate things. So is he teaching Nineveh if you do right works that God will relent? Is no this more, works righteousness? No more so than Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Okay. Who said, to whom he said, if you're really serious about this, you know, go, uh, go and sell all your belongings and give them to the poor. What did Jesus say to him before that? Before he said, sell all your belongings? No, he quoted six of the commandments, all except for the ones that dealt with God. You know, you shall not murder... You shall not commit adultery. Uh, you shouldn't be disobedient to parents. All, all the ones that don't deal with God. All the ones that are interpersonal with you and other people. That's what Jesus first said to him. And his answer was, I've done all those. I've kept all those perfectly. And so then Jesus says, well, if you've done that, then go sell what you have and give it to the poor and follow me. To reveal what? And that's the same thing, trying to show him that what his heart looks like. That's the same thing that Daniel is doing to Nebuchadnezzar here. Turn from your sins to righteousness. Right? And if you do that, then it will be revealed by having mercy on the poor. Which is the same thing that James says, right? He says, 
You say that you have faith. Show me your faith. I have faith, and I'll show you my works that prove my faith. Ephesians 2.10, we're saved for good works. Absolutely. So he's saying the same thing that Jesus said to the rich ruler that James argued in chapter 2 of James. Is, that is that you need to have an inner righteousness, but that inner righteousness will be revealed in the way that you live, the things that you do. That's what the pastor was preaching this morning, right? You'll be judged according to your works because your works reveal your heart condition. And yet you'll be judged even beyond that because God knows your motives. Go ahead. Right. Not a guarantee at all. But he's trying to give advice to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the same advice that Christ gave, same advice that James wrote, and that is that you need to become righteous, which you can't do by himself, and that will be revealed in the way that you live. Now, never do we have a record of Nebuchadnezzar doing anything close to this. As a matter of fact, we have no revelation that this affected Nebuchadnezzar in any way until after it was decreed and happened. Doesn't affect him because you know it doesn't affect him by what happens in the next couple of verses that we'll talk about next time. Is that he's still arrogant a year later. He's even more arrogant a year later than he is at this point. Self-consumed. He's walking around one day admiring himself when he finally loses his mind. So this is, Daniel is truly fearful for Nebuchadnezzar and what he's going to go through. Explains it all to him what it means and then gives him advice that could avert it or at least prolong it. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't heed his advice. I don't know what more Daniel could have done. And so God has given this dream to Nebuchadnezzar for the purpose of what? What's his purpose? I think it's twofold. He wants to demonstrate who he is that he's God. Okay, to the whole world. And beyond that, he wants to show Nebuchadnezzar that this is true. And how much more real could it be to Nebuchadnezzar than to experience what he goes through? How, how much clearer could it be that, that God is in sovereign control, not only of the world and his creation, but of your mind and what you think and what you understand and what you realize? God's even that control, in control of his creation. He, he could manipulate it, if you want to use that word, any way he wants to. But he's always good, always righteous, always just. But he's in total sovereign control. Now, if you're a liberal, you have to reject this passage, right? Because you can't accept that God is in control to the point where you can change someone's mind. And if you do accept this as scripture, then that's where your theology has to go to. And you can't say, well, it's somewhere in between those two. You can't. 
because God is in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar here, causing him to realize things and to go crazy. So people usually go halfway. You can't. You got to step full into this passage or, re or reject it. One or the other. You can't go part way. God either sets up the powers in the world and controls what happens and controls the minds of men, or he doesn't. Can't be halfway in between. It's interesting to me to consider how in Egypt, you know, God set up Pharaoh. Um, Joseph went to Pharaoh through his, you know, the deception of his brothers. God brought a famine, so that then all the nations around, all the people groups around Egypt, were then dependent upon Egypt, and Egypt rose to this great power. And then God sends Moses later on, and again shows his power and that who he is through this Pharaoh, who is this ruler that's in control of so much, and, and, can, and the, so that everybody can see again how God is more powerful than all these Egyptian gods. And then in a similar, though not exactly the same, but in a similar way, he's doing the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. He, he brings a man to power, he rises to power of an evil man, mm -hmm. and then God uses that evil man again to show his power to the world. Right. And, and as we said, Daniel and Joseph, similar. Similar. Got to their position of leadership in the same way. And by the way, we, we asked the question, what happens during the seven years? Who's the right-hand man of, of Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel. Who's been running the country for 20 years? Daniel. And his three friends. That's who's running the country, not the, not the king. And so when the king's not there, they just keep doing the same thing they've been doing. Daniel is the most powerful guy in the land other than Nebuchadnezzar himself. He can keep it under control, and he does. And he's over all the scholars. He's over all that there is. And so Daniel's the one who just keeps it together. And when Nebuchadnezzar is restored to his mind, he just steps right back in. So God used Daniel to hold the, the nation together, the kingdom together. And the kingdom of iron and bronze that it speaks of would be the kingdoms that want to maintain Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon because they were benefiting from that uh, realm. They were. I mean, the whole world was. I mean, you know, while he, he did kill people and decimate the countries and all of that, Yet, he also provided for them. If he hadn't, he would have had a lot of, you know, they, he would have fallen. Not to mention the right. So that's what's going on here in this interpretation by Daniel. Now, next week we'll see where it actually happens and what the result of it is. And then we'll have a lot of discussion about that, right? <laughs> what really is the result of this? So final word, a comment, question you've got? Okay, thanks for your time. <laughs>